Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. All right. Well, hello. If you don't know me, my name is Sarah Fletcher. I am also... Hi. I am also on pastoral staff with Chi Alpha, and I am happy to be continuing our series, not just the beginning, which is through the book of Genesis. So Pete brought a fantastic message last week on creation, and specifically that work existed before the creation, uh, or before the creation, before the fall, and uh, meaning that uh, it is a good thing for us to engage with work. And at UVA, Uh, There are sinful patterns we can fall into where we're either a sluggard towards our work or enslaved by our work, and yet instead, the way of the kingdom is to be a steward of our work, and I just thought that was phenomenal, and I hope that has blessed your studies richly. Uh, And so as we continue in Genesis, we hit chapter three. I brought a prop. Um, So chapter three, the fall. I get to talk about sin. I will not say that I teach sin. We'll, we'll hold back on that one. Uh, I teach about it. Uh, so as I think about this message and as I prepare to give it, uh, I think the Lord has been preparing me for this message since I was in high school. So fun fact, you guys have heard I was not a Christian until I came to college. I met Jesus through the Kyle community. So when I applied to UVA, you know how like Common App, you have your regular essays, but then you can do the one extra essay to short us sort of show your flair. They still have that? Great. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a 15 stanza poem on why it was good that Adam and Eve sinned. <laughs> that was my entrance to UVA. Um, so that's who I was in high school. And then the Lord quickly found me and he's been writing this message ever since. I promise you that is not the message I am bringing today. And I will not read the poem because it's atrocious. Uh, My poetry's gotten much better. Uh, Great. So there's some great poetry classes at UVA. Wonderful. Moving on to actual content. We're going to set the stage. This is a story that might be one of the most preached about passages of scripture. Uh, You probably also have seen it referenced in movies or TV shows or comic strips over and over again. We have references to the fall of man, and yet it is such a rich passage that we can find so much in, Uh, and also a very mysterious passage, like there's the talking snake. Uh, Yeah, it's very mysterious, and yet it's part of scripture, and there's truth in it that we need to hold on to so that we can live a kingdom life. So, the story begins. I'm going to set the stage. Also, actually, (laughs) sorry, there are Bibles in the back. As we're going through Genesis, can I just say, if you do not have a Bible, this is such a great time to get a Bible. I will not be offended if you want to stand up and walk and get one. Yes, celebrate you. I won't clap because that'll make it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, you're not even getting a Bible. It's okay. Um, (laughs) Yes, right there for you. And you can keep them. We also have them in other languages if you need, so you let us know. But great time to have a Bible. I'm so sorry. You probably got up for a completely different reason. Wonderful. So if you want to turn to Genesis 2, I'm going to set the stage. You can just kind of absorb too if you like. So Genesis 2, 8 through 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, we're at 16 and 17 now, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And in verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So it starts off in the most perfect setting you could imagine. All the things that God has created and they are good. They look around and they see God's provision in the trees and the fruit and the rivers that flow from Eden. They look at each other and they see God's provision in companionship, in perfect relationship with this person who is made for them. They look around and it is beautiful. And in the midst of all of these beautiful things, there is just one thing that they are told, don't eat from that tree. One no in this entire garden of provision. And you don't have to know the story to know what is coming next because we know humanity. We know ourselves. We know if there is that one tree that says no, there is something in us that wants it. Does anybody go to a museum and the moment it says do not touch, you're just like... I think that every single time I'm in a museum, it's bad. I'm sorry, any art history people, I won't touch it, I promise. But there's just something in us that when there's that no, we know that we want to know about it. And that's where our story continues. And this story is the beginning of sin, but it's also not just the beginning. What it's going to do is it's going to set a framework for understanding how we also walk into sin in our lives and choose that one thing in the midst of just a banquet of provision that we weren't supposed to touch. And if we understand it, then we can guard ourselves against it and learn how to live as God has called us to live. So, how did it happen? Turn to chapter 3. It should be on the same page, probably. Genesis 3, 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And so we see that the story of mankind sinning started with an attack on their confidence in God's word. It started subtly, just a question. Did God really say not to eat of that tree? He wants to create skepticism in in the heart of the woman of, is this really God's word? And instead of telling him to go away or, you know, just ignoring the conversation, the woman speaks. And she says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So we see Eve's reply back. So he has challenged her of, is this in God's word? Is this part of God's word? And the good news is she knows She knows it. She knows she's not supposed to eat of that tree. But what we also see is she adds to God's word. She says, but you also must not touch it or you will die. Um, So we don't know why this is. Some theologians, we only see in the scriptures God saying to Adam to not eat of the tree. So some think it's Adam failing to communicate it or adding to God's word. A lot of people think, you know, God would have told it to Eve, so it's her misinterpreting or her adding. Whatever the reason, the thing is, is that God's word has not stayed God's words. Something has been added to it. 
the serpent will take advantage of that. Can I say that's why we read our Bibles, right? Like that's why we want to know what does it actually say? And does it actually say that part? Because there is some danger when we start adding or subtracting things from the word of God. And we see it happen because next, verse four, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. So this is the first outright deception that we see in the scriptures. And what it is, is I think uh, the root deception of so much of what the enemy wants us to believe, which is that sin has no consequence. Oh, that's not going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt anyone. That's not a big deal. Why? Why do you, why does the enemy want this? It's because when we think there's no consequence to a rule or no real consequence, then of course it starts to feel arbitrary, right? Like, why not eat from the tree? Why not do that thing? If there's no consequences, then the rule is either unnecessary or it's keeping you from something, right? It's not just neutral, but it's bad. Uh, so there's some ancient Jewish theologians who actually, they, have, they say a different part of this story, but they say the serpent took advantage of what the woman said when she said, and you must not touch it, that he pushed her against a tree and said, see, you do not die. That, that when we add to scripture and we treat it as truth, that we are opening ourselves up to deception as well. Because if we get to a place where we think sin has no consequence, that, that this law is arbitrary, we're creating that space to say, well, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I just take it and eat it? It's the child saying, why do I have to go to bed at nine? What difference does 15 minutes make? Or the adult saying, why do I have to go 65 miles per hour? What difference does five miles make? Is anybody else like absolutely the last place you will be sanctified is the road? Yes, it is so hard. I'm like, 65? And then you're like the person in front of you who's going really slow and you just want to pass them and you're so mad and then you finally get around them and it's like this little old person and you feel really, really bad. Um, Yeah, the Lord's working on my heart in that. That is my one place because I'm like, it's arbitrary. Who cares? Let me go the speed I want to go. That's what we start to do with God's word when we say there are no consequences for the things that he's told us not to do. And all of a sudden, if no true consequences can be seen, God is either someone who makes arbitrary rules or someone who is lying and keeping something from us. So the first step to sin is not knowing God's word. And the second step is not knowing sin's consequence. And that leads to, number three, an attack on our trust in God's goodness. Verse five says, for God knows that when you eat from it, this is a serpent speaking, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent is moved from getting Eve to focus on what she can't have, the tree, to its natural conclusion, which is God is keeping something good from you. If there are no consequences, God is just keeping it from you. Perhaps there's a reason that God is keeping this from you. He's trying to keep the knowledge of good and evil from you. He's trying to keep something good from you. And all of a sudden, it's not just a, do you know God's word? It's God isn't who he says he is. He's not good. He's keeping good from you. And you just want to yell out, like, there is a whole garden of trees, Eve. There is a lot of fruit here. 
there is a whole literal God who created the universe that you can get wisdom from. You don't need to get it from a tree. There are so many other things here, but she's just focused on that one thing she can't have, that one tree she can't have. And all of a sudden, her heart is turned, right? Because if this thing is good and God has kept this good thing from me and there's no consequence to it, then God is not good but he, because he's kept it from me. And what happens when we, we doubt God's goodness? We take it, right? We take the thing. And it also, just can we say, like, that's not a good place for our hearts. It's the child who thinks that it's not that they have to go to bed at 9 p.m. so they can have energy tomorrow. It's because mom and dad want to stay up and have ice cream and not allow me any. Have you ever met kids that you babysit who say that? We have a lot of babysitters, done a lot of babysitting in my time. Kids say the darndest things. Um, so, but what it is, is it, it's a lack of trust. And that leads you to want to push against the boundaries, to break the laws. It makes you ask the question, and I want to ask this question to you, truly. And I think Pete said this in our last series. Do you believe that God's laws are keeping good for you? Or that they're keeping good from you? Because Eve has made that turn to thinking that God's rules are good to now God's rules are keeping me from something good. Eve answered that question. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So for those of you who are like, women, uh, I want you to read there. She gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate, like, Adam's like there and he's like, huh, interesting. Yeah, tell me more. You know, like, he's like, like, he's like there. Um, And so I just wanted to be shown humanity fell. Men and women made a decision. They both took the fruit and they ate. And there you have it. That is the beginning of sin. Any of these steps could get you there, because if you don't know something is a law, then you're probably not going to follow it. But, but truly, these steps, they, they lead us to a lack of trust in God that leads us to make decisions. So it's, it's number one, did God really say? Did he really say that? Number two, surely this can't have any consequences. Like, what consequence could be here to number three? It's his plan to keep me from this good thing, so he must not be good. Then four is, if I am right about what is good and he is not, then I can make my own decisions and do what I want instead. And then we take it. I would take a bite, but I think that would be too visceral of an experience with a microphone, like right here. Um, Or it would be the opposite effect, and it'd be sort of like ASMR, and you'd all just fall asleep. So we're not going to take a bite of the apple, but it's a good prop, right? Thank you, Arthur, for picking my apple. Um, Wonderful. So we take the fruit. Those are the steps that happen even now. This story was not just the beginning. It is also the steps that we walk through so often. It's like, uh, you know when you were a kid and you see the glowing orange ring on top of the box that your parents make food on? And you're like, that's a pretty glowing ring. 
It's nice, nice and orange. It's got, it's bright. Uh, it's kind of like fireflies, and I can touch those. And mom puts like a pan on that, so I can probably touch that, right? And you're like looking at the pretty glowing ring, and you're reaching your hand out. And your parent grabs it and says, "You're not allowed to touch that. That'll burn you." But you've never been burned before, so you don't know what that really is. And you're like, I don't know. I think I can touch it, right? Like, I think I can touch it. And your mom and dad walks away, and you're looking at the nice glowing ring, and you're like, I really want to put my hand on it. And in that moment, you have to decide, based off my knowledge, this thing is pretty, pretty great, right? But mom and dad love me. And they gave me a rule. And I get to choose whether to obey them or not. I realize that is such a simplification of things. But I think that is also the heart of things, right? Children often don't understand why we ask them to obey something, right? Like, they don't know much. They don't know why they should not do that thing that is going to hurt them. And their parents, out of love, offer restrictions. Maybe they even try to explain, but the child just can't get it yet. And the parent says, I just need you to obey me. Please, I love you. Will you obey me? I'm trying to keep you safe. I'm trying to keep you healthy. And then the child has to learn. And so often the parents love, this is so hard, but it's only proven over time, right? It's years of obedience to learn why your parents told you those things, why they sent you to bed, why they taught you to budget, why they taught you to do all of these things. They're trying to help you to become the strongest, wisest person they can, and it takes years for you to realize that. And we almost all go through a little teenage phase where we're kind of like, I don't think you love me. Um, Did anybody else do that? No, just me. Um, And then you hit like 24 and you're like, I'm so sorry, mom and dad. Like everything was right. I apologize. Um, There's this verse in Matthew 18. Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. God's question to his children is, will you obey even if you don't get it? Some of you are out here doing the right things, but can I tell you it's not obedience, it's agreement. Because if you also think the thing is bad, that's just agreement. But then you hit something, and you're like, but wait a minute, God, and then that's the moment where you have to choose obedience or not, right? Like agreement and obedience are different, and so many of us are in that place where we're having to choose obedience, and that's where it's costly. Do I trust God's character? Do I trust that he loves me? Do I trust that he's keeping me safe? Do I trust that I don't understand the long-term consequences of this? Because there are consequences to sin, and it's a lot more than putting your hand on top of a stove. These consequences are deep, and lasting, and they affect more than just you. We see it happen. I encourage you to read all of Genesis 3. We're not going to read all of it right now, but what happens is that Adam and Eve, after they sin, they become aware of their bodies. They become aware of their shame, and they sew fig leaves together, which are like really big leaves. I just had to look it up because I was like, how big is a fig leaf? They're like big. Um, They sew them together so that they can cover their body shame. They are no longer secure. They are no longer vulnerable with one another. They are no longer willing to be seen. It's almost kind of what what you were sharing, Arpen. It's, It's when you think that if people see the real you, they won't love you. And so you hide. 
We cover ourselves with different things. We cover ourselves with our pride or our ego or our character or our degree or our, our wealth or our family, our finances, and we cover ourselves and we hide shame. And then what happens next is that the man and the woman hide. They hide from God. Back to babysitting. Any of you ever babysit? Someone in child psych can give me this term. It's not object permanence, but like when the child covers their eyes and they're like, if I can't see you, you can't see me. What? It is object permanence? Great. I love doing hide-and-go-seek with kids at that period because they literally just sit in a corner and cover their eyes, and you're like, where are you? Um, Super cute. Uh, That's kind of what God is doing in this moment. They're hiding from God, and God's like, where are you? And the man says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear and hiding are consequences of sin. And next, God asks them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? And the man says, the woman, the woman, she gave it to me and I ate. He's blaming the woman. And then he says, the woman you put here with me. So Adam is blaming both the woman and God for the woman that God made who gave him the apple or whatever the fruit was, pomegranate. We don't know. Um, And then the woman, the Lord says to the woman, what is this you have done? And she's like, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What we see is that sin leads to blaming. None of us are willing to own our responsibilities. We have this brokenness in our perception of ourselves through shame, this brokenness in the perception of others, blaming this brokenness in the perception of God, hiding and fear. And those are only the consequences that Adam and Eve see right then. If you go further down, God starts to tell them the consequences that'll come because of the decision that they've made. There is, for the woman, painful labor in childbirth. So we see brokenness in our physical bodies. Uh, He says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Brokenness in our relationships. Note that this comes post-fall. That the woman craves her husband. She looks for her fulfillment in her relationships and it's never enough. It's never enough. And the man subjugates the woman that there's improper just levels of relationship here and these are sin consequences. It goes on for Adam. He's going to suffer in his labor. The ground is going to put forth thorns. He's going to work by the sweat of his brow. Broken environments. How many of you look around the world and you're like, we've absolutely broken our environment? There are consequences to sin. God could have gone on. Every category of broken or of human life is just broken by sin. And if you wanted to list the consequences, you could go on and on and on. The wages of sin is truly death. That it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and no wonder that death is the consequence This is the fruit of sin. This is what God was trying to keep humanity from. Verse 22 says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Can I tell you, so many people look at this chapter and they just look at, at the, what God did and they call it harsh. They call it judgmental. Can I tell you, this is an act of mercy. He is looking 
at, at the consequences of their sin and he's saying they cannot live forever or they will be stuck in this forever. Something needs to change. Something needs to be broken. And so many people look at those pronunciations of what's going to happen, the broken bodies, the broken relationships, the broken environment, and, and there, I think we get tripped up by that word curse. Can I tell you that it does not say that God curses Adam and Eve, that the word curse in reference to them is only about how they have cursed the environment. I truly believe that God isn't cursing them. I believe that God is telling them what their sin is doing and will do. What the natural consequences of sin are. I I don't think God, and I believe we need to understand that God is not someone who makes arbitrary rules and then gives huge consequences for those arbitrary things. I want us to, to think back to that garden, right? All of the trees and the water and the perfect provision and Adam and Eve with no shame, being willing to be together, fully seen. This is the Hebrew word called shalom, right? Perfect peace, everything in perfect harmony. It isn't just neutrality. It's like all good things working together, um, God doesn't create arbitrary rules. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not uh, gossip. Do not... All of these things, they're not just like go to bed at 9 p.m. They're expressions of what those things will do to shalom. So a good way to picture shalom is I want you to imagine, maybe like close your eyes and just like become aware of your body. Okay, and I want you to think about your shoulder, right? Like your shoulder uh, has like a a joint that fits in a socket, right? I want you to like roll your shoulder a little bit, right? Like just be aware of it. Like everything fits right there, right? Like it works well. You could throw a baseball. You could, like it, it moves well. Okay, open your eyes. Any of you ever had a sports injury? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone ever like got, got the arm? Ooh, Ryan. Yeah. Okay, I want you to imagine your arm being wrenched out of the socket. It hurts. Yeah, it hurts. Sin is to take things out of their proper place. It is to break the set order. It is to to wrench, to dislocate. And what happens is that so often we are sitting here and we're looking at what's surrounding us. We're looking at the restrictions. We're looking at the space, the guardrails, and we're saying, I want freedom. I want out. And yet the socket is what's keeping everything functioning well, right? There are restrictions in our life that are meant so that we can operate well, so that we can flourish, so that we can move, so that we can have freedom. And we look at those restrictions and we think, no, I want this instead. And instead, what we're doing is we're breaking the body. And it doesn't just affect ourselves, right? Last semester, I was able to bring a message of how we are all part of the body, right? We are all different roles in the body. We have the eyes and the hands and the feet and the eye cannot say, I do not need the ear and the hand cannot say, I do not need the foot. God's rules are expressions of what your actions will do to the shalom of his body, to the shalom of humanity and the world that he has made. Murder is like cutting off a limb. Gossip is like a cancer spreading. Greed is like nutrients being stored up in one place as the rest of the body starves. Divorce, 
like wrenching the shoulder out of the socket. Sin breaks shalom. These are not things that are restrictions for arbitrary reasons. These are things that bring shalom to you and to the body that keep us well, that keep us safe, that keep us functioning. God is not pronouncing a punishment. He's telling them what their actions are doing to shalom. I mean, if I were to ask you to take out your phone right now, I'm not going to, you don't have to. But like, we know the consequences of this, right? Like open your news app and just scroll and you will see the consequences of sin. It's the corporate executives who dump chemicals into water because it's cheaper than finding a real place to dump them. It's the person who drinks and then gets behind the wheel. It's the, the father or the mother who leaves their family for the younger flame who makes them feel good. That all of these things, that, that they might feel like freedoms, they might feel like one person felt like it was best, but what it does is it breaks shalom in the body. That is what it looks like when mankind reaches out and they say, God, you don't get to say what is good. I do. And that's the heart of everything that we're talking about tonight. I I think when we talk about sin, again, so often we want to talk about rules. But yes, there are rules. Yes, there are restrictions. But it's about so much more. And so I want us to look at a very particular passage. Um, We see that the serpent said when if they reached and took of the tree, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. And then in verse 22, you see that God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And so the serpent is almost speaking some truth. It's just not a good truth. Um, but, but, so D.A. Carson is a Bible scholar, writer, has some great books, um, president of the Gospel Coalition. And he has pointed out that uh, historically we have to understand that this concept of knowing good and evil has two meanings. The first one is the one that we get, which is that they experience both good and evil, right? Which would be enough. God is trying to keep them from the experience of evil and how it breaks shalom, how it breaks relationships, how it breaks your, your relationship with yourself, with God, with people, with earth, And yet there's also a second uh, connotation of this phrase, to know good and evil, which is God knew good and evil, right? He was the creator. He was all-knowing. And so to know it is, in a sense, to establish it. To know it is to say, I know what is good and what is evil. It's this sense of saying, God, you get off the throne of getting to define what is good and evil, and I'll place myself on it. And that is why this story is not just the beginning. So many of us look at it and we're like, I don't get the tree. Who cares? It's just a tree. But what it represents is this root of sin, which is to say, God, you will not be my authority. I will be my own. God, you do not belong on the throne. I do. And there's there's this great pride in that. There's this great hubris because it's just taking everything that was created and putting it on its head. That God, who is creator, who is king, who is Lord, that you would upend things and put yourself in his position. But then the question becomes, if God's not your authority, what is? What becomes 
that, that locus of decision-making in your life? I, I think there's a lot of answers we could give, but I think there are some that are the most kind of probably potent for our community. And the first one is emotions, right? What I want. I want it and I want it now. Uh, Sadie, it's what you were saying. Like God has a good gift for us in the proper timing, but I want it now and I want to use it my way. Right? Our emotions. Why are emotions a bad thing to have be what decides what is good and bad? They change? Yeah, yeah. They change very, very quickly. Have you ever wanted something and then you did it and you were like, I regret it, I regret it, I regret it? My earliest memory of this is when I was probably five or six and I had frosted flakes for the first time. And my mom gave me a bowl and they were so good. Y'all, we weren't allowed like sweet stuff. And so these things were just insane. It was a special, we were on vacation. It was very special. And then I wanted another bowl. And my mom said, Sarah, you, you don't want another bowl. My mom left the room. And I was like, yes, I do. I poured myself another bowl. Y'all, my little five-year-old body could not handle this like two of these large bowls. I got very sick. I regretted it instantly. My emotions changed about Frosted Flakes. Emotions change, right? Because, because the situation changes or we learn the consequences and all of a sudden that decision we thought was so good, we understand is bad. If you have emotions as the authority of your life, you are going to wreck yourself and wreck others regularly. It will not be fun for you. Can I please, please, please encourage you, get your emotions off that throne. The second thing is culture, right? That, that we let our community and the people around us tell us what is good, right? Every culture has it, its, uh, its things that it loves, its ways that it, the things that it leans into, the things that it educates. And the reality is, y'all, if culture is your authority, did you know that there's been like a thousand cultures and that every single people group and every single generation and every different political system has its own culture and they all think they're right? Like, do you guys think our culture is right? Like, actually, go read a history book. Every single person who started a war, was that culture right? All of the decisions that they made about what territory to take because it was good for them, is that right? Cultures are not right. They make bad decisions all the time that wreck people, that wreck generations and leave scars through, through hundreds of generations. Cultures, they're not going to help y'all out. Get that off the throne. And this next one is the one that I think is like most insidious for our community especially, which is intellect. I heard the ums. Tell you? You want me to tell you? Let's go. All right, intellect. Okay, you guys. Like, I think I can distill all information of every consequence of every one of my actions, that I am the locus of everything uh, long-term and short-term of all of life, that I understand sociology and biology and psychology and theology and ethics, justice, wisdom, history perfectly enough to be able to make all the right decisions in my life. Y'all, I'm like 32. I'm older than you. I've had way more time. You should listen to me. Like, I don't know. Like, you don't know everything. Do you know that? You don't know everything. Why do you think you know what's best? 
you have so much left to learn. Your degree only goes so far. Those of you who are learning engineering, I don't know how that helps you at all. <laughs> helps you make some good, you know, good money, which I hope that you use to bless the kingdom, but it's not going to help you with your decision making. Y'all are so prideful. If you think you can figure out what's best for you. Sorry, I kind of feel like an old like mother right now, like a mother hen who's like, kids. Um, but seriously, this was me. I was so prideful. I thought I could figure out everything. I thought I knew everybody who made a decision that I disagreed with, I was like, they have no idea how that's going to turn out. I know exactly how that's going to turn out. Um, and then had no idea the wreckage that was coming from my own decisions in other people's lives. Because so often I was looking only at myself and not at anybody else. I wasn't looking at the shalom of, of the body. I was just so worried about what I wanted and my future and what would be good for me. Like I could even figure that out. Y'all get your brains off the throne. Like God gave them to you. They're good, but they're also in process. All of these things are good. Your emotions are good. Our culture, there are beautiful things in it. It's true. I believe every culture reflects God's kingdom in some way. Your brains, God gave them to you. Go use them for the kingdom. Go build beautiful things. Go help people. Go serve. But you're not meant to be on the throne. And the reality is, sin, we love to think that we can figure out what rules apply to us or not. But what you are doing is you are saying, I know what is good and I know what is evil. And God, you can step down. Like, you get me? You good? Is that enough challenge? We feel okay? Uh, okay. Yeah, hopefully I haven't lost y'all. Um, I just really do believe that if we looked at sin and truly thought, if God is my loving father, maybe he has a reason he told me not to do that. I know I want it right now, and I know that in my brain, like, I don't see consequences to this, but can I trust that if he is all-knowing, that he knows how every decision I make will impact my brother or my sister, my community, my country, the nations, that to ask him how I should move is probably a wise thing. And it's not that I've given up all power. He's set boundaries, but then he's provided such freedom for us. It's the shoulder moving. There's so much freedom to accomplish so many things. We get to choose so many good things. But if we don't stay in the restrictions, we are going to bring pain and wreckage to the future and even to our bodies right now, to our minds right now, to our core groups right now, to our houses right now. All of those things that were on the slide, I know we don't think that like all of those are the consequence of us choosing to lie or to gossip or to, I don't know, we had a whole series on, you know, relationships, so, like, have premarital sex. Like, can you just trust that God has a reason? And you might not get it yet because it takes time for kids to understand. But one day we'll get to live that out by agreement, not just obedience, but it takes time for us to get it. And so we close with a question of, okay, here is humanity. They've caused this wreckage that... that 
their children, one of their sons is going to murder the other one. Like sin just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And what happens next? What is God going to do with this people who, who upend his throne and put themselves on it? I think it's so beautiful. It's right there in the text. When Adam and Eve hid, the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Our God is the God who doesn't run from us, the God who abandons us, the God who punishes us. Ours is the God who seeks us out where we're hiding and says, where are you? Why are you in shame? Why are you in fear? Why are you hiding from me? He is the God who seeks. And even though we left the garden because we couldn't be in this holy place because God wanted us to not be able to eat from the tree of life because he had a plan, right? And what's beautiful is that we skipped that pronunciation to the serpent, right? We looked at God saying the reality of what was going to happen for Adam and Eve, but the good news is he also pronounced a reality over the snake. And what it said was in verse 14 and 15, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, jumping down, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelion. This is the first gospel. From the very moment of sin, God has said, a child is going to come who will crush the serpent. And that's who we have in Jesus, right? Worship team, you can come up. Jesus is the one who, when we were hiding in the wilderness, maybe not even hiding, maybe not even aware of our sin, in this broken world, he took on flesh, God in flesh, and came down and sought us out. Jesus is the God who gathered broken people around him and taught them like they were children, who taught them through stories, who told them what was good, who told them what was evil, who loved them well. Jesus who, who went to a garden and was looking at the reality of his own death, and yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. You are on the throne. I will submit because I trust your plan is good. Jesus was that new Adam who went to the garden and said, God, you are on the throne. And then the beautiful thing is Jesus went up on a tree And all we could see in that moment was the terror of it, the horror of it, the brokenness of it. And yet, God knew that from that tree, life would come. That Jesus would have new life, that he would resurrect. And what I think is very just like poetic, I love poetry, is that Jesus also gave us this gift of communion, which we're going to close in tonight after a song. And why I think this is beautiful is because Jesus says, if you eat of this bread and drink of this cup in memory of me, we're going to be one body. We're going to have eternal life. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat this. Eat of this new tree of life that we find embodied in this person of Jesus. And so as we go to this song, it's called Altar. Um, it's inviting us to get off our thrones. 
It's inviting us to stop looking at sin as arbitrary laws and instead to look at sin as disobedience to a father who loves us and is only looking for our good. And so as we go to this song, this is one of those moments, sure, you can sing, but I would rather you just talk with God and then like sing if that helps you. This altar is open, but, but what we're saying is that before we get to communion, you've got to get off the throne. You've got to get off your throne and you've got to run to the altar where Jesus is and say, forgive me. Say, I repent. I turn of my ways. Help me to learn what it is to have you as my authority, to trust God as my father, that he loves me, to believe that his word is good. And so if you'll stand, that's mostly just to get you moving. You can sit again if you want. I just don't want this to be static. I want you to move. If you need to run to the altar, run to the altar. If you need to kneel and confess, if you need to go stand somewhere or pace and just repent, I do not want you to get to the act of communion without taking yourself off the throne. And then when we take it, we can take it as one body, choosing shalom by living the way our Heavenly Father has called us to live. Sound good? God, would you move in this time? Would you bring us to your throne, to your altar, and to help us abandon our own? God, we give it to you. Teach us to do that every day. In your name we pray. Thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Lord, tonight, as your people, we say we want you on the throne of our hearts. We humble ourselves before you. Lord, when we questioned your goodness, you responded to our rebellion by showing us just how good you are. If you'll take the communion elements, take the wafer that's on the top. God's response to our rebellion and questioning his goodness was to show us the ultimate expression of his goodness. I'm going to the cross. And he says, I'll enter the wreckage of this broken world. And I will take the consequences of your rebellion. So shalom can be restored in your life. And ultimately in the world. On the cross, we see the goodness of God. Lord, we thank you for the ultimate sacrifice that showed us your goodness and your love. And it humbles us to say, Oh God, we want you on the throne of our hearts and the throne of our lives. Thank you for paying the price for our sin that we could be restored and that shalom could be restored with you in our relationships and ultimately one day we know in our world. In Jesus' name.
Now let's take the wafer. And then we have the cup that represents the blood of Christ. Jesus said this when he took this, that this was a new covenant in his blood to do this in remembrance of him. That our only hope, that our only peace, that our only restoration lies in the blood of Jesus. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I often picture myself just drinking the cup and it just washing over me. As the reality that I live in and you live in each day. That his blood makes us clean, right? And makes us whole. And so will you take the cup? Lord, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us on the cross. We thank you that there is power in the blood. The soul-cleansing blood. That your sacrifice got rid of our sin. Purified us. So we could be restored to you. We thank you. For the blood that was shed on the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the cup. Lord, we thank you that your response was to enter the wreckage. Enter the mess to restore us. To establish your kingdom in our lives. To establish your kingdom on the earth. And ultimately one day make all things new. So we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for the power of your death, burial, and resurrection in our lives today. We thank you for the hope of the future. Where one day we will eat of the tree in a new heavens and a new earth. With you as our king. You on the throne of our hearts. And on the throne throne of, of all of your people. In Jesus' name. For the benediction tonight. Thank you, Sarah, for a great message. For the benediction tonight, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace, shalom, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.